Chapter 6 of What Katie Did Next. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Porrick. What Katie Did Next by Susan Coolidge. Chapter 6 Across the Channel. Dawn had given place to day, and day was well advanced toward noon, before the stout little steamer gained her port. It was hours after the usual time for arrival. The train for Paris must long since have started, and Katie felt dejected and forlorn as, making her way out of the terrible ladies' cabin, she crept on deck for her first glimpse of France. The sun was struggling through the fog with a watery smile, and his faint beams shone on a confusion of stone piers higher than the vessel's deck, intersected with canal-like waterways, through whose intricate windings the steamer was slowly threading her course to the landing-place. Looking up, Casey could see crowds of people assembled to watch the boat come in. Workmen, peasants, women, children, soldiers, Customs house officers moving to and fro, and all this crowd were talking all at once, and all were talking French. I don't know why this should have startled her as it did. She knew, of course, that people of different countries were liable to be found speaking their own languages, but somehow the spectacle of the chattering multitude, all seeming so perfectly at ease with the preterites and subjunctives, and never once having to refer to Ollendorf for a dictionary, filled her with a sense of dismayed surprise. "'Good gracious!' she said to herself. "'Even the babies understand it!' She racked her brains to recall what she had once known of French, but very little seemed to have survived the horrors of the night. "'Oh, dear! What is the word for trunky?' she asked herself. They will all begin to ask questions, and I shall not have a word to say, and Mrs. Ash will be even worse off, I know. She saw the red-trousered customs-house officers pounce upon the passengers as they landed one by one, and she felt her heart sink within her. But after all, when the time came, it did not prove so very bad. Katie's pleasant looks and courteous manner stood her in good stead. She did not trust herself to say much, but the officials seemed to understand without saying. They bowed and gestured, whisked the keys in and out, and in a surprisingly short time all was pronounced right. The baggage had passed, and it and its owners were free to proceed to the railway station, which fortunately was close at hand. Inquiry revealed the fact that no train for Paris left till four in the afternoon. I am rather glad declared poor Mrs. Ash, for I feel too used up to move. I will lie here on the sofa, and, Katie dear, please see if there's an eating place, and get some breakfast for yourself and Amy, and send me a cup of tea. I don't like to leave you alone, Katie was beginning, but at that moment a nice old woman who seemed to be in charge of the waiting room appeared, and with a flood of French which none of them could follow but which was evidently sympathetic in its nature, flew at Mrs. Ash and began to make her comfortable. 
From a cupboard in the wall she produced a pillow, from another cupboard a blanket. In a trice she had one under Mrs. Ash's head and the other wrapped round her feet. Pauvre madame, she said. Si pâle, si souffrant. Il faut avoir quelque chose à boire et à manger tout de suite. She trotted across the room and into the restaurant which opened out of it, while Mrs. Ash smiled at Katie and said, You see, you can leave me quite safely. I am to be taken care of. And Katie and Amy passed through the same door into the buffet and sat down at a little table. It was a particularly pleasant-looking place to breakfast in. There were many windows with bright polished panes and very clean short muslin curtains. And on the window-sills stood rows of thrifty potted plants in full bloom, marigolds, balsams, nasturtiums, and many-coloured geraniums. Two birds in cages were singing loudly. The floor was waxed to a glass-like polish. Nothing could have been whiter than the marble of the tables except the napkins laid over them. And such a good breakfast as was presently brought to them. Delicious coffee in bowl-like cups, crisp rolls and rusks, an omelette with a delicate flavour of fine herbs, stewed chicken, little pats of freshly churned butter without salt, shaped like shells and tasting like solidified cream, and a pot of some sort of nice preserve. Amy made great delighted eyes at Casey, and remarking, Having France is heaps nicer than that old England, began to eat with a will, and Casey herself felt that if this railroad meal was a specimen of what they had to expect in the future, they had indeed come to a land of plenty. Fortified with a satisfactory breakfast, she felt equal to a walk, and after they had made sure that Mrs. Ash had all she needed, she and Amy and Mabel set off by themselves to see the sights of Dieppe. I don't know that travellers generally have considered Dieppe an interesting place, but Katie found it so. There was a really old church and some quaint buildings of the style of two centuries back, and even the more modern streets had a novel look to her unaccustomed eyes. At first they only ventured a timid turn or two, marking each corner and going back now and then to reassure themselves by a look at the station. But after a while, growing bolder, Katie ventured to ask a question or two in French, and was surprised and charmed to find herself understood. After that she grew adventurous, and no longer fearful of being lost, led Amy straight down a long street lined with shops, almost all of which were for the sale of articles in ivory. Ivory wares are one of the chief industries of Dieppe. There were cases full, windows full, counters full, of the most exquisite combs and brushes, some with elaborate monograms in silver and colours, others plain. There were boxes and caskets of every size and shape, ornaments, fans, parasol handles, looking-glasses, frames for pictures large and small, napkin rings. Katie was particularly smitten with a paper-knife in the form of an angel, with long, slender wings raised over its head and meeting to form a point. Its price was twenty francs, and she was strongly tempted to buy it for clover or rose-red. But she said to herself sensibly, This is the first shop I've been into, and the first thing I've really wanted to buy, and very likely as we go on I shall see things I like better and want more. So it would be foolish to do it. No, I won't. 
and she resolutely turned her back on the ivory angel and walked away. The next turn brought him to a gay-looking little marketplace, where old women in white caps were sitting on the ground beside baskets and panniers full of apples, pears, and various queer and curly vegetables, none of which Katie recognised as familiar. Fish of all shapes and colours were flapping in shallow tubs of seawater. There were piles of stockings, muffetees, and comforters in vivid blue and red worsted, and coarse pottery glazed in bright patterns. The faces of the women were brown and wrinkled. There were no pretty ones among them, but their black eyes were full of life and quickness, and their fingers one and all clicked with knitting needles, as their tongues flew equally fast in the chatter and the chaffer, which went on without stop or stay. Their customers did not seem to be many, and sales were few. Returning to the station, they found that Mrs. Ash had been asleep during their absence, and seemed so much better that it was with greatly amended spirits that they took their places in the late afternoon train, which was to set them down at Rouen. Katie said they were like the wise men of the East, following a star, in their choice of a hotel, for, having no better advice, they had decided upon one of those thus distinguished in Baedeker's guidebook. The star did not betray their confidence, for the Hôtel de la Cloche, to which it led them, proved to be quaint and old, and very pleasant of aspect. The lofty chambers with their dimly frescoed ceilings, and beds curtained with faded patch, might to all appearances have been furnished about the time when Columbus crossed the ocean blue, but everything was clean and had an air of old-time respectability. The dining-room, which is evidently of more modern build, opened into a square courtyard where oleanders and lemon-trees and boxes stood round the basin of a little fountain, whose tinkle and plash blended agreeably with the rattle of the knives and forks. In one corner of the room was a raised and railed platform, where behind the desk sat the mistress of the house, busy with her account-books, but keeping an eye the while on all that went forward. Mrs. Ash walked past this personage without taking any notice of her, as Americans are wont to do under such circumstances. But presently the observant Katie noticed that everyone else, as they went in or out of the room, addressed a bow or a civil remark to this lady. She quite blushed at the recollection afterward, as she made ready for bed. How rude we must have seemed, she thought. I am afraid the people here think that Americans have awful manners. Everybody is so polite. They said, Bonsoir and merci and voulez-vous avoir la bonte? To the waiters, even. Well, there is one thing. I am going to reform. Tomorrow I'll be as polite as anybody. They will think that I am miraculously improved by one night on French soil. But never mind. I am going to do it. She kept her resolution and astonished Mrs. Ash next morning by bowing to the dame on the platform in the most winning manner and saying, Bonjour, madame, as they went by. But, Katie, who is that person? Why do you speak to her? Don't you see that they all do? She's the landlady, I think. At all events, everybody bows to her. And just notice how prettily these ladies at the next table speak to the waiter. They do not order him to do things as we do at home. I noticed it last night, and I liked it so much that I made a resolution to get up and be as polite as the French themselves this morning. So, all the time they went about the sumptuous old city, 
rich in carvings and sculptures and traditions, while they were looking at the cathedral and the wonderful church of Saint-Ouen, and the palace of justice, and the place of the maid, where poor Jeanne d'Arc was burned and her ashes scattered to the winds. Katie remembered her manners, and smiled and bowed, and used courteous prefixes in a soft, pleasant voice, and as Mrs. Ashe and Amy fell in with her example more or less, I think the guides and coachmen and the old women who showed them over the buildings felt that the air of France was very civilizing indeed, and that these strangers from savage countries over the sea were in a fair way to be as well-bred as if they'd been born in a more favoured part of the world. Paris looked very modern after the peculiar quaint richness and air of the Middle Ages which distinguished Rouen. Rooms had been engaged for Mrs. Ashe's party, in a pension near the Arc de Toile, and there they drove immediately on arriving. The rooms were not at the pension itself, but in a house close by. A sitting-room with six mirrors, three clocks, and a pinched little grate about a foot wide. A dining-room just large enough for a table and four chairs. And two bedrooms. A maid called Amandine had been detailed to take charge of these rooms and serve their meals. Dampness, as Katie afterwards wrote to Clover, was the first impression they received of gay Paris. The tiny fire in the tiny grate had only just been lighted, and the walls and the sheets and even the blankets felt chilly and moist to the touch. They spent their first evening in hanging the bedclothes round the grate and piling on fuel. They even set the mattresses up an edge to warm and dry. It was not very enlivening, it must be confessed. Amy had taken a cold. Mrs. Ashe looked worried, and Katie thought of Burnet and the safety and comfort of home with a throb of longing. The days that ensued were not brilliant enough to remove this impression. The November fog seemed to have followed them across the channel, and Paris remained enveloped in a wet blanket which dimmed and hid its usually brilliant features. Going about in cabs with the windows drawn up, and now and then making a rush through the drip into shops, was not exactly delightful, but it seemed pretty much all that they could do. It was worse for Amy, whose cold kept her indoors and denied her even the relaxation of the cab. Mrs. Ashe had engaged a well-recommended elderly English maid to come every morning and take care of Amy while they were out. And with this respectable functionary, whose ideas were of a rigidly British type, and who did not speak a word of any language but her own, poor Amy was compelled to spend most of her time. Her only consolation was in persuading the serene attendant to take part in the French lessons which she made a daily point of giving to Mabel out of her own little phrase-book. "'Wilkins is getting on, I think,' she told Katie one night. "'She says biscuit glacé quite nicely now. "'But I never will let her look at the book.' though she always wants to. For if once she saw how the words are spelled, she would never in the world pronounce them right again. They look so very different, you know. Katie looked at Amy's pale little face and eager eyes with a real heartache. Her rapture when at the end of the long, dull afternoons her mother returned to her was touching. Paris was very triste to poor Amy with all her happy facility for amusing herself, and Katie felt that the sooner they got away from it the better it would be. 
so, in spite of the delight which her brief glimpses at the Louvre gave her, and the fun it was to go about with Mrs. Ashe and see her buy pretty things, and the real satisfaction she took in the one perfectly made walking suit to which she had treated herself, she was glad when the final day came, when the belated dressmakers and artistes and jackets and wraps had sent home their last wares, and the trunks were packed. It had been rather the fault of circumstances than of Paris. But Katie had not learned to love the beautiful capital as most Americans do, and did not feel at all as if she wanted that her reward of virtue should be to go there when she died. There must be more interesting places for live people, and ghosts too, to be found on the map of Europe, she was sure. Next morning, as they drove slowly down the Champs-Élysées, and looked back for a last glimpse of the famous arch, a bright object met their eyes, moving vaguely against the mist. It was the gay red wagon of the Bon Marche, carrying bundles home to the dwellers of some uptown street. Katie burst out laughing. It's an emblem of Paris, she said. Of our Paris, I mean. It has been all Bon Marche and fog. Miss Katie, interrupted Amy, do you like Europe? For my part, I was never so disgusted with any place in my life. Poor little bird, her views of Europe are rather dark just now, and no wonder, said her mother. Never mind, darling. You shall have something pleasanter by and by if I can find it for you. Burnet is a great deal pleasanter than Paris, pronounced Amy decidedly. It doesn't keep always raining there, and I can take walks, and I understand everything that people say. All that day they sped southward, and with every hour came a change in the aspect of their surroundings. Now they made brief stops in large busy towns which seemed humming with industry. Now they whirled through grape countries with miles of vineyards, where the brown leaves still hung in the vines. Then again came glimpses of old Roman ruins, amphitheatres, viaducts, fragments of wall or arch, or a sudden chill betokened their approach to mountains, where snowy peaks could be seen on the far horizon. And when the long night ended and day roused them from broken slumbers, behold, the world was made over. Autumn had vanished in the summer, which they thought fled for good, had taken his place. Green woods waved about them, fresh leaves were blowing in the wind, roses and hollyhocks beckoned from white-walled gardens, and before they had done but exclaiming and rejoicing, the Mediterranean shot into view, intensely blue with white fringes of foam, white sails blowing across, white gulls flying above it, and over all a sky of the same exquisite blue, whose clouds were white as the drifting sails in the water below, and they were at Marseille. It was like a glimpse of paradise to eyes fresh from autumnal greys and glooms, as they sped along the lovely coast, every curve and turn showing new combinations of sea and shore olive-crowned cliff and shining mountain peak. With every mile the blue became bluer, the wind softer, the feathery verdure more dense and summer-like. Pierre and Cannes and Antibes were passed, and then, as they rounded a long point, came the view of a sunshiny city lying on a sunlit shore. The train slackened its speed, 
and they knew that their journey's end was come, and they were in Nice. The place seemed to laugh at gaieties. They drove down the Promenade des Anglais and past the English garden, where the band was playing beneath the acacias and palm trees. On one side was a line of bright-windowed hotels and pensions, with balconies and striped awnings. On the other, the long reach of yellow sand beach, where ladies were grouped on shawls and rugs, and children ran up and down in the sun, while beyond stretched the waveless sea. The December sun felt as warm as on a late June day at home, and had the same soft, caressing touch. The pavements were thronged with groups of leisurely-looking people, all wearing an unmistakable holiday aspect. Pretty girls in correct Parisian costumes walked demurely beside their mothers, with cavaliers in attendance. And among these young men appeared now and again the well-known uniform of the United States Navy. I wonder," said Mrs. Ash, struck by sudden thought, "if by any chance our squadron is here." She asked the question the moment they entered the hotel, and the porter, who prided himself on understanding those English, replied, "Mais oui, Madame, the American fleet it is here. That is not here, but at Villefranche, just a little four mile away. It is the same thing exactly." Katie, do you hear that? Cried Mrs. Ash. The frigates are here, and the Natchi Toshes among them, of course. And we shall have Ned to go about with us everywhere. It is a real piece of good luck for us. Ladies are at such a loss in a place like this with nobody to escort them. I am perfectly delighted. So am I," said Katie. "I never saw a frigate, and I always wanted to see one. Do you suppose they will let us go on board of them?" Why, of course they will. Then to the porter, give me a sheet of paper and an envelope, please. I must let Ned know that I am here at once. Mrs. Ash wrote her note and dispatched it before they went upstairs to take off their bonnets. She seemed to have a half hope that some bird of the air might carry the news of her arrival to her brother, for she kept running to the window as if in expectation of seeing him. She was too restless to lie down or sleep. And after she and Katie had lunched, proposed that they should go out on the beach for a while. Perhaps we may come across Ned," she remarked. They did not come across Ned, but there was no lack of other delightful objects to engage their attention. The sands were smooth and hard as a floor. Soft pink lights were beginning to tinge the western sky. To the north shone the peaks of the Maritime Alps. And the same rosy glow caught them here and there, and warmed their greys and whites into colour. I wonder what that can be," said Katie, indicating the rocky point which bounded the beach to the east, where stood a picturesque building of stone, with massive towers and steep pitches of roof. It looks half like a house and half like a castle, but it's quite fascinating. I think. Do you suppose that people live there? We might ask," suggested Mrs. Ash. Just then they came to a shallow river spanned by a bridge, besides whose pebbly bed stood a number of women who seemed to be washing clothes by the simple and primitive process of laying them in the water on top of the stones and pounding them with a flat wooden paddle till they were white. Katie privately thought that the clothes stood a poor chance of lasting through these cleansing operations, but she did not say so. 
and made the inquiry which Mrs. Ashe had suggested in her best French. Cela? answered the old woman whom she had addressed. Monsieur le pension suisse. A pension? Why, that means a boarding house! cried Katie. What fun it must be to board there! Well, why shouldn't we board there? said her friend. You know, we meant to look for rooms as soon as we were rested, and had found out a little about the place. Let us walk on and see what the pension suisse is like. If the inside is as pleasant as the outside, we could not do better, I should think. Oh, I do hope all the rooms are not already taken, said Katie, who had fallen in love at first sight with the pension suisse. She felt quite oppressed with anxiety as they rang the bell. The pension suisse proved to be quite as charming inside as out. The thick stone walls made deep sills and embrasures for the casement windows, which were furnished with red cushions to serve as seats and lounging places. Every window seemed to command a view, for those which did not look toward the sea looked toward the mountains. The house was by no means full either. Several sets of rooms were to be had, and Katie felt as if she had walked straight into the pages of a romance when Mrs. Ashe engaged for a month a delightful suite of three. A sitting room and two sleeping chambers, in a round tower with a balcony overhanging the water, and a side window from which a flight of steps led down into a little walled garden nestled in among the masonry, where tall laurestinus and lemon trees grew, and orange and brown wallflowers made the air sweet. Her contentment knew no bounds. I'm so glad that I came, she told Mrs. Ashe. I never confessed it to you before, but sometimes, when we were sick at sea, you know, and when it would rain all the time, and after Amy caught that cold in Paris, I've almost wished, just for a minute or two at a time, that we hadn't. But now I would not have come for the world. This is perfectly delicious. I'm glad, glad, glad we are here, and we're going to have a lovely time, I know. They were passing out of the rooms into the hall as she said these words. And two ladies who were walking up a cross passage turned their heads at the sound of her voice. To her great surprise, Katie recognized Mrs. Page and Lily. My cousin Olivia, is it you? she cried, springing forward with a cordiality one naturally feels in seeing a familiar face in a foreign land. Mrs. Page seemed rather puzzled than cordial. She put up her eyeglass and did not seem to quite make out who Katie was. It's Katie Carr, Mamma, explained Lily. Well, Katie, this is a surprise. Who would have thought of meeting you in Nice? There was a decided absence of rapture in Lily's manner. She was prettier than ever, as Katie saw in a moment, and beautifully dressed in soft brown velvet. Which exactly suited her complexion and her pale coloured wavy hair. Katie Carr, why, so it is, admitted Mrs. Page. It is a surprise indeed. We had no idea that you were abroad. What has brought you so far from Tunket? Burnet, I mean. Who are you with? With my friend Mrs. Ashe, explained Katie, rather chilled by this cool reception. Let me introduce you, Mrs. Ashe. These are my cousins, Mrs. Page and Miss Page. Amy. Why, where is Amy? 
Amy had walked back to the door of the garden staircase and was standing there looking down upon the flowers. Cousin Olivia bowed rather distantly. Her quick eye took in the details of Mrs. Ashe's travelling dress and Katie's dark blue ulster. Some contrafat friend from that dreadful western town where they live, she said to herself. How foolish of Philip Carr to try and send his girls to Europe. He can't afford it, I know. Her voice was rather rigid as she inquired. And what brings you here? To this house, I mean. Oh, we're coming tomorrow to stay. We've taken rooms for a month, explained Katie. What a delicious old place it is. Have you? said Lily, in a voice which did not express any particular pleasure. Why, we are staying here too. End of chapter 6 Across the Channel Recording by Porrick